Welcome to The Bloody Bible, the podcast where we explore why our fascination with crime is as old as the Bible itself. I'm Em. And I'm Kaz. And in this episode, we're going to be looking at some particular types of gender-based violence that we see taking place in the biblical texts. So just to give you a content warning at the start, we'll be talking today about intimate partner violence and coercive control, both in the Bible and contemporary culture. Now, if this is a topic that's particularly hard for you to listen to, you might want to skip this episode. And as usual, we'll add some links to resources and support services in our show notes. So before we start, I'm sure we're all familiar with the term intimate partner violence, but can you give us a brief definition of coercive control, just in case any of our listeners aren't familiar with that term? Sure. So I'll, I'll draw on a definition offered by Laura Richards, who is a criminal behavioural analyst, a law reformer and campaigner, and a leading expert in the fields of domestic violence, sexual violence, stalking and coercive control. She is a complete shero in my eyes, Em, and I'm also a huge fan of her podcast, Crime Analyst. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> she's great. Now, according to Laura Richards, coercive control involves an abuser using a regime of tactics to control, entrap, subordinate, exploit and dominate the victim within their relationship. The primary word Laura stresses is entrapment. Mm. Women are entrapped in coercively controlling relationships with the result that it becomes increasingly difficult for them to leave their abuser. Yeah, that's such a useful explanation. Mm. You mentioned certain tactics that perpetrators use. Can you tell us what these are? Sure. So perpetrators might threaten and intimidate their victims, humiliate them, denigrate them, regulate, surveil and isolate them, gaslight them and love bomb them. But I'll explain more about these tactics as we go through the episode. Okay, cool. But that's a really good place to start. Hmm. So how does coercive control tie in with wider issues of intimate partner violence? Because we often think of intimate partner violence as referring to physical abuse or sexual violence. But would you say that coercive control is also a form of intimate partner violence? Yeah, I think I really think it is. I mean, at the heart of intimate partner violence is the perpetrator's need for control or to be more precise, his sense of entitlement at being in control. Mm. There's a wonderful book by Australian journalist Jess Hill called See What You Made Me Do. And I think we've both read it, haven't we? Yeah. And Jess Hill talks about the underlying dynamics of intimate partner violence. And she makes the point that men abuse women because our patriarchal society teaches men they are entitled to be in control and that they need to be in control if they want to succeed as men. So abusers try to maintain that control in various ways, through physical and sexual violence and or through the behavioural regime of coercive control. And it's all in an effort to subordinate, entrap and dominate their partner or ex-partner. Yeah, you're right. It's an utterly brilliant book. Her analysis really gets to the heart of this phenomenon that kind of bubbles away just below the surface of our societies in which we just don't talk about nearly enough. No, no. Do you have any idea, Kaz, how common coercive control is within abusive relationships? Yeah, so I found some recent statistics from New Zealand, which is where we are both located, and they were collated by a team of researchers at the University of Waikato. And they found that in New Zealand, one in three women, so that's 35%, report experiencing physical or sexual intimate partner violence during their lifetime. Now, that figure goes up to 55% if you include coercive control as a form of intimate partner violence. Wow, that's really, really high. That's, yeah. that's hugely concerning. It really is, yeah. 
Overall, one in four women reported experiencing coercive control at the hands of a partner or former partner. Now, these figures are, as you say, they're really shocking, really concerning, but they're not unique to New Zealand. Other countries, including the United Kingdom and United States, also report similar figures too. So domestic violence and coercive control are a hugely significant issue. Yeah, they're basically global endemics, aren't they? Yeah. And I know that up to now we've been talking about female victims and male perpetrators, but we know that anyone of any gender can be a victim or a perpetrator of intimate partner violence and coercive control, right? Yes, absolutely. Intimate partner abuse can affect anyone, regardless of their gender or sexuality. But statistically, most victims are women and most perpetrators are men. Mm. And this is particularly true in terms of coercive control. As Laura Richards points out, women are especially vulnerable to coercive control because, as she says, and I'm quoting her here, it's about the patriarchy. Women become entrapped because the systems and processes were designed and created by men to protect men. So women become invisible in them. And it's about the misogyny and the gender bias and the sexism that keep women entrapped. So in other words, patriarchy, misogyny and sexism create a climate where men's coercive control of women can flourish. Yeah, absolutely. So for this episode, I want to focus on a particular metaphor that's used in some biblical texts, because I think it captures some of the dynamics of intimate partner violence and particularly coercive control. This metaphor is usually referred to as the prophetic marriage metaphor. So could you start us off M, by giving us an overview of what this metaphor is? As I understand it, the marriage metaphor is a way that some of the biblical prophets explained the relationship between God and Israel and why that relationship seemed to be in trouble. So essentially the metaphor portrays the people of Israel as God's adulterous wife who has chased after other, air quotes, lovers. And these lovers might be a metaphor for other gods or maybe other nations. And so God punishes his unfaithful wife's disloyalty by threatening her with some pretty horrific physical, sexual, verbal and emotional violence in an attempt to punish her and subordinate her within their marriage. Yeah, that captures things really, really well. So we find this marriage metaphor being used in a number of prophetic books in the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament, including Hosea chapters 1 to 3, Ezekiel chapters 16 and 23, and Jeremiah chapters 2 to 4. But for this episode, I've chosen to focus on the book of Hosea. So if I can ask you again um, to help us out, do you mind giving us a brief summary of the marriage metaphor in Hosea? Of course. In the opening verses, God tells the prophet Hosea that he has to marry an unfaithful wife. And so the prophet marries a woman called Goma, and they have three children. Now, throughout the first three chapters of this book, Hosea basically uses his troubled marriage as a way to reflect on God's equally troubled relationship with Israel. And the text seems to merge the experiences of the prophet and God as they battle to regain control over their unfaithful partners, Goma and Israel. And because of this unfaithfulness, Hosea and God threaten to punish their wife with sexual, physical and emotional violence. But then there's a twist where they seem to switch from intimidation mode to seduction mode, promising to love their wife and stay married forever as long as she changes her way and isn't unfaithful anymore. 
So this text can be quite confusing when you read it at first, because Hosea's experience and his marriage are kind of woven into a metaphor about God's relationship with Israel. But basically the way a lot of biblical scholars understand it is that Hosea is speaking about his own marriage, but he's also using that relationship to explain to the people of Israel why God is so angry with them. Yeah, I think that's a really helpful way of understanding what's happening in these chapters. And the way you summarise them captures so clearly the cycle of abuse we often see in contemporary cases of intimate partner violence. The abusive partner starts off by accusing his victim of some wrongdoing, and then he moves on to threaten her. Then he lashes out with violence. And finally, he attempts a reconciliation. Hmm. But it's only a temporary reconciliation because the cycle is bound to repeat itself and the violence will happen again. Yeah. Now, a number of feminist biblical scholars have written about this cycle of violence in Hosea 1 to 3, and we will list some of these in our show notes. But what I want to do today is take a closer look at the text and focus particularly on the prophet's use of coercive control within his marriage, because I think we can see it quite clearly if we study this text closely. Yeah, absolutely. Before we start, though, why do you think it's important to highlight the abuse and coercive control in texts like Hosea? Because I've often taught classes on the prophetic marriage metaphor, and I always get some students saying, oh, it's only a metaphor, it's harmless. It's not telling readers to actually go out and abuse their wives. So, you know, where's the harm? Mm, Yeah. And I've read similar statements from some biblical scholars too. How would you answer that? Yeah, I've had questions like that too. I would say that, yes, the marriage metaphor is a metaphor, but that's not to say it's harmless. The ideologies underpinning it sort of leak out into intimate partner relationships and understandings of gender roles. Yeah. So sure, the, the text isn't explicitly telling people that it's okay to abuse their spouse, but it is framing abuse as an appropriate response in certain relationship contexts. And it's telling us that both the prophet and God see intimate partner violence as a suitable way to recover a damaged marriage. Mm. So we have a prophet and a deity, two masculine figures with immense authority condoning and perpetrating intimate partner violence against their so-called unfaithful wife. And that gives the act of abuse a powerful sense of approval, which I think is a really troubling idea to share with readers of this text. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Because like it or not, the violence depicted in texts like Hosea chapters 1 to 3 reflects what many people are currently experiencing in our own neighbourhoods, in our own workplaces and in our faith communities. Yeah, yep, absolutely. Okay, so I want to see if we can recognise any signs of coercive control in Hosea's relationship with Gomer. Start us off, Em, what are your first impressions of this text? Okay, well, you mentioned earlier that abusers often feel a sense of entitlement to take control of their relationships. And that's the first thing that strikes me when I read these chapters in Hosea. The prophet seems to have this unshakable belief that he's entitled to control and dominate his wife. So when she tries to leave him, Hosea just can't accept that. It's as though he needs to reassert his control over her. And I notice that he begins this process by threatening her with all sorts of horrific abuse unless she returns to the marriage. Yeah, threats and intimidation are a really common tactic used by coercive controllers. An abuser often creates various rules and regulations which he expects his victim to obey. And he'll also threaten her with certain punishments and consequences if she doesn't obey. These punishments might involve sexual or physical violence or more emotional violence. 
For example, the abuser might threaten to publicly shame his victim or to withhold his affection from her or to cut off her financial support. Yeah, so it sounds as though these threats are used to remind the victim that her abuser holds all the power and that she has no power. She's trapped in this relationship and is not allowed any agency. So do you think that's what's behind all Hosea's threats to Goma? Yeah, I, th- I think it could be because Gomer is trying to have agency, isn't she? Mm. According to Hosea, she's been chasing after other men and is trying to leave the marriage. And do we know if that's actually true? No, not really, no, because all we get is Hosea's point of view. Gomer doesn't get the chance to respond to his accusations at all. Ha, huh. so she doesn't even have the power of speech? No, no. So the reason I ask that is that it's quite a common pattern in abusive relationships. The abuser will accuse his victim of being unfaithful, and that serves to justify his threats and his anger and his control. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. And even when the victim insists that she's not being unfaithful, it's as though her word isn't good enough. Her abuser just fails to listen to her, refuses to listen to her or believe her. Yeah, that's a really common part of an abusive relationship. And certainly, Hosea insists that Gomer's being unfaithful. So in chapter two, he warns her that if she doesn't stop seeing these other men, he'll take away everything from her, including the things that she would need to survive. He threatens to deprive her of food and water. He'll disown her children. He'll trap her with walls and thorn bushes so that she can't access her lovers. He'll destroy her property. And on top of that, Hosea threatens Gomer with sexual and emotional abuse by telling her that he's going to strip her naked and publicly shame her in front of her so-called lovers. All these threats of punishment are designed to terrorise Gomer and to enforce her obedience. Yeah, that's absolutely not okay. No, no it's not. I get the strong feeling that Hosea really wants to humiliate and degrade his wife here by threatening her with all these horrific things, particularly that last one where he threatens to publicly strip her. Yeah, and humiliation and degradation are actually additional tactics used by coercive controllers. They might tell their victim that she's useless and unlovable, or they'll humiliate her in front of her family and friends, or downplay her achievements so that she feels increasingly diminished and undervalued. Mm. And one example I read about recently involved a man who always complained about his wife's cooking when they had friends around for dinner. You know, he'd say that the food was cold or burnt, that it was too spicy or too bland. He'd sort of jokingly tell their guests that his wife was a terrible cook, that she couldn't even boil an egg. Now, on its own, this might not appear to be particularly serious, People outside the relationship might not even recognise it as abusive, or they might just shrug it off as a bit of banter or a minor spat between husband and wife. But this sort of humiliation can be part of a wider pattern of abuse that's hidden behind closed doors, and it's a really toxic way to erode the victim's sense of self-worth, especially when it's so persistent. So when Hosea threatens to publicly strip Gomer in front of her lovers, I see this as a huge red flag that points to Hosea's coercive control. Yeah. It's as though he wants to make Gomer's alleged lovers see her as this totally humiliated and degraded woman who's under her husband's control. And I guess it might also give him the chance to assert his own masculine omnipotence and superiority over these men, as though he's saying to them, I control her, not you. You know, she belongs to me and I can do what I like to her. You can't stop me. I've got more power than you. Yeah. In Hosea chapter 2 verse 10 actually hints at that. It says, and I'm quoting here, 
So now I will expose her luredness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. Mm. That's so chilling, isn't it? Hosea is refusing to accept that she belongs to anyone but him. It is. It's really chilling. And Gomer's humiliation doesn't end there because when Hosea is listing all the punishments he has in store for her, he's actually doing it in front of an audience. They're three children. Oh. Yeah. Chapter two begins with the prophet saying to them, to the children, and I'm quoting here, rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. So he's effectively degrading and sexually humiliating his wife in front of her children, as though he's really wanting to turn them against her. Gosh, that's just another level of abuse, isn't it? Yeah. It's emotionally manipulating the children too, right? They become pawns in Hosea's battle to control his wife. Do you think Hosea is also trying to isolate Goma here, to cut her off from her children as well as those lovers that he thinks she has? Yeah, and, and that's actually another tactic of coercive control. The perpetrator may try to isolate his victim from her family and friends by minimising the time she spends with them or by driving a wedge between them or asking her to choose, you know, it's, it's either them or me. Mm. And this tactic works to ensure that the victim will lose access to her support networks and she won't get the opportunity to disclose her abuse or seek professional help. Yeah. She's less likely to spend time with someone who might tell her that her relationship is unhealthy and abusive or who might encourage her to leave it. So isolation works to keep the victim firmly in her abuser's sphere of influence, so that he remains the most powerful person in her life. Okay, so that does seem to be what Hosea is doing to Goma, right? He's cutting her off from everyone else she knows. He's hedging her in so that she's trapped in this horrific marriage that she can't escape. And even when Goma does make an attempt to leave him... Hosea just goes and gets her back, doesn't he? Yes, yes, he does. Now, I've actually come across some biblical scholars who think that Hosea's decision to take back his so-called unfaithful wife is a sign of his love and loyalty to her. They actually praise him as the ideal husband and a perfect example of loving forgiveness. I've even seen him described as, air quotes, the prophet of love. Ugh, I've seen that too. It's so wrong. It's so problematic. Yes. It totally ignores the horrific abuse that's going on in these chapters. Yeah. It reminds me of some relatively recent cases involving celebrities who were charged with domestic violence, but some of their fans were very quick to try and reframe and diminish the severity of the abuse, or they accused the victim of exaggerating or lying. And I think that's because these men are held in such high regard. Yeah. Excuses get rolled out because we just don't want to hear that our heroes are actually capable of doing some really bad things. Mm. And maybe that's the case with Hosea too. He's a prophet. He's chosen by God to speak God's word to the people. And so we feel really uncomfortable about calling him a perpetrator of intimate partner violence. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. It, it's as though Hosea's abuse is reframed as a type of tough love to win back his unfaithful wife and make her see the error of her ways. But there's nothing loving about what's happening in these chapters. No. Even when Hosea stops threatening and humiliating Gomer and tries to reconcile with her, it doesn't make me feel any better. And he says to Gomer, and I'm quoting here, therefore I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Honestly, that actually sounds more creepy than reassuring. 
Hosea seems to be using the tactic of isolation here again. Gomer's being taken out into the wilderness, whether she wants to be there or not. There won't be anyone around to help her escape or to protect her from Hosea's violence. And her consent isn't even mentioned. It's as though it doesn't even matter because her husband's the one with all the control. Yeah, and I actually think Hosea's utilising another tactic of coercive control here. I think he might be trying to love bomb Gomer. Ah, yes. Can you remind us what love bombing is? Yeah, sure. So in between threatening and humiliating his victim, a perpetrator might bombard her with really grandiose reassurances of love and devotion. You know, like, you're my one true love. I can't live without you. You're the light of my life, the centre of my world. Oh, we're so good together, you know, etc., etc. But it's so disingenuous because it's simply a strategy designed to manipulate the victim and persuade her to stay in this abusive relationship. It's intended to give her some hope that things might get better so she's more likely to stay. But things never get better and the threats and humiliation will inevitably start again. Yeah, it's the classic cycle, right? Yeah. So why do you think that Hosea might be love bombing Goma here? He says, and these are his words, therefore I'm now going to allure her. Now, I have mixed feelings about this word allure when it's used in a contemporary context. So can I ask about this word allure in this text? Like what kind of meaning does it have here? Does it mean like I'm going to be really nice to her? Or is there something more sinister that makes you think that love bombing's involved? Well, the Hebrew word can actually carry quite a negative meaning, a bit like in English as well. Mm. In Hebrew, it can mean to seduce, to lure, to entice, or even to deceive. So it could definitely be tied to the idea of Hosea love bombing Gomer and trying to manipulate her emotions. It just doesn't feel genuine to me. Yeah, I see what you mean. It's as though Hosea is using this love language to convince Gomer that all his violence, his threats, can just be easily forgotten or that they were never that serious in the first place. Mm. I get the feeling that Hosea is setting Gomer up to doubt her own memories, to doubt her own experiences or to make her blame herself for her own abuse. Yeah, It's like later on in chapter two when Hosea says, and I'm quoting here, I will show my love to the one I used to call not my loved one. It seems as though he's previously told her that he doesn't love her, that he's called her not my loved one, and he's been threatening her with violence, but now he's insisting that he does love her. All these mixed messages just feel so confusing and disorienting. And, and that actually makes me think of another tactic used by coercive controllers. Have you heard of gaslighting? Yeah, I have. It's when someone tries to make their victim feel as though they're going crazy or losing their mind, right? I think it comes from the 1944 film called Gaslight, where the husband tries to make his wife believe she's going mad. And he does this by manipulating her environment and making her question her own sanity and her own reality. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's a tactic used to distort the victim's sense of reality so that she starts to doubt herself and to doubt her own ability to grasp what's real and what's not. So a perpetrator might constantly negate what their victim says or tell them that they're wrong all the time or deny that certain events happened or blame the victim for doing things they actually did not do. Mm. Laura Richards uses a really good example to explain gaslighting. So just imagine um, we're out for a walk. And you point up at the bright blue sky above and say to me, oh, the sky is so blue today. Now, if I wanted to gaslight you, I would try to convince you that, no, the sky's not blue. You're seeing things. You're crazy. 
you need your eyes tested. Are you colorblind? I want to control the narrative and I want you to start doubting yourself so that you'll comply with my truth claims. Yeah, that would be really disorienting. Mm. Actually, I came across an example of gaslighting in a novel I was reading recently. Now, I won't share the title because I think it would be a bit of a spoiler. But in this one scene, an abusive husband pushes his wife down the stairs and then turns around and acts all concerned for her and says, oh, you know, you were drunk. You must have tripped. I didn't push you. This is really your fault. Oh, that, that's such classic gaslighting, isn't it? It really, really is. Yeah. So getting back to Hosea and all the mixed messages he's giving to Goma, it really does feel like he's gaslighting her, right? Yeah. And that lets him hold on to this sense of control in the relationship, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. He's controlling what she does, what she thinks, and he's not giving Goma an inch of agency. Yeah, and, and that is a recurring theme during the so-called reconciliation scene in chapter two. Hosea takes his own relationship with Goma and uses it as a metaphor for God's relationship with Israel. So it's both Hosea speaking to Goma here and God speaking to Israel. So let me just read some phrases from this reconciliation scene, and I'm quoting here. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. And then when Hosea is speaking about Gomer in the third person, read the following, and I'm quoting again. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I used to call not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. So what do you think of these words, Em? Yeah, wow, yeah. Those words are a really big red flag for me. Mm. Because it's clear that first and foremost, Hosea wants to control and regulate his wife, right? Yeah. He tells her that they'll be married forever. But what she wants isn't given any consideration. And that's such a classic part of abusive relationships, isn't it? Abusive spouses can't take no for an answer. They have to have control. They have to dictate the relationship. Yes, he's taking total control here, isn't he? What Gomer wants isn't even considered. And we don't hear her voice at all. Mm. And I'm also really disturbed by the way Hosea is even planning to control what words Gomer can and cannot say. She has to call him my husband, not my master. And he warns her that he's going to, and quote, remove the names of the Baals from her mouth. Yeah, that's definitely really troubling. What do you think is meant by these Baals, Kaz? Well, the word Baal literally means lord or master, but it is also the name of a Canaanite deity. So here in the text, it seems to serve a dual function. It's referring to the foreign gods and idols that Hosea is accusing the Israelites of worshipping, but it could also allude to Gomer's alleged lovers too. Ugh, I really don't like that imagery of God or the prophet forcibly removing the names of the Baals from his wife's mouth. It feels so violent and invasive. Yeah, yeah, it's very disturbing. And the insistence that she calls him my husband, it's, as you say, totally regulating her every move, even down to what she can and can't say. Absolutely. And regulation or micro-regulation is actually another tactic used in coercive control. 
A perpetrator may try to regulate and control every aspect of his victim's life by dictating what she does, what she wears, what she eats, how she speaks, where she goes, who she spends her time with. And part of this also involves surveilling the victim constantly, such as reading her texts and emails, phoning her repeatedly, demanding to know where she is all the time and how she's spending every single minute of her day. And this causes the victim to feel that they don't have any freedom at all. It's as though the victim's life is totally invaded and taken over by their abuser. They have no autonomy or agency, and that will have such a huge impact on their sense of self and their personhood. Mm. It must feel totally suffocating. It actually reminds me of this case I recently listened to on the Small Town Dicks podcast. Oh, I've not heard of that podcast. I must add it to my list. Is it good? It's definitely worth checking out. So the episode I was listening to involved the case of a woman who was murdered by her husband when she was in the bath. Her husband had been abusing her and coercively controlling her for quite some time. They slept in separate bedrooms, but he'd even removed her bedroom door so that he could surveil her. Oh, that's just awful. Yeah. And so she told a friend that the bathroom was her only sanctuary, the one place she could escape and be at peace. Mm. So the fact that her husband killed her in her sanctuary really feels like his way of invading and destroying that one small corner of her life that she had left. He wanted total, absolute control. Yeah, that's so heartbreaking, isn't it? It, It's as though he was punishing his wife for having this one tiny piece of autonomy left in her own life. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So going back to Hosea chapter 2, another thing that struck me is the fact that Hosea the prophet is explicitly using his own abuse of marriage as a metaphor for God's relationship with Israel. So the voices of God and Hosea almost seem to intertwine with each other here, as though their identities are overlapping. And that's fascinating to me and, and disturbing because it conflates the identity of the husband with the identity of the deity, as though in a marriage, a husband will always have supreme authority and control. He'll always be superior to his wife, because no one is more superior than God. Yes, I I actually noticed that too when you were reading out the passage from chapter 2. A few phrases stuck out for me, like, and I'm quoting again here, In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and... I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. So God and the husband merge into one. The husband is imbued with this sort of divine power and status, and that's massively problematic for me. Why do, why do you think it's problematic? Because it's like God is reinforcing something that's already such a huge part of our patriarchal worldview. Something, you know, we mentioned earlier The idea that men grow up with the sense of entitlement to be in control, to hold all the power, and to subordinate women, to be almost godlike in their omnipotence and total authority. Yeah, yeah. And that's what seems to lie at the heart of intimate partner violence and coercive control. If a man's sense of control is undermined by his partner, he feels so outraged and wronged by her that he believes he's entitled to take back that power and control by using violence or coercion. Yeah, I completely agree. That's such a good point. And Jess Hill also brings this up in her book, See What You Made Me Do. She uses the term humiliated fury to describe the process where an abuser loses his sense of control in the relationship. His partner may do something that he interprets as a sign of her disrespecting his authority. 
and that makes him feel incredibly shamed. So he lashes out with violence as a way to deal with that shame and to regain control of the relationship. That's really fascinating and actually reminds me just how powerful shame is as an emotion, particularly, I think, for men, because it's such a huge part of idealized masculinity, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Men are taught from an early age that they're entitled to be in control. So if anyone diminishes their sense of control, it can cause a really intense feeling that they've somehow failed at being a man or that they're somehow not a real man. Mm. Of course, I mean, we all feel shame from time to time, but most of us learn to deal with it in much healthier ways that don't involve hurting other people. But I guess abusers don't have those coping skills to handle their shame in less harmful ways. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, Jess Hill explains that when abusers experience feelings of shame, they lash out with humiliated fury as a way to overcome these feelings, even in the short term. Mm. Do you think Hosea experienced humiliated fury? Is that why he abused Goma? Yeah, that's how I make sense of what's happening in the text. And that's not to excuse the violence he perpetrates against Goma, but it does help us to understand it. I'm always struck by something he says in chapter 2, verse 13, where he's using his own marriage to reflect on how God feels about Israel's unfaithfulness. And he says, and I'm quoting, I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the Baals. She decked herself with rings and jewellery and went after her lovers. But me, she forgot. Mm. She forgot him. He's no longer the centre of her world. And I think that's what's at the heart of Hosea's shame. And that's what sparks his spiral into humiliated fury. Yeah. Hosea believes that his violence will enable him to overcome his shame and regain his sense of entitlement and his sense of masculinity. But doesn't Jess Hill say that humiliated fury can't actually solve anything? It might make an abuser feel like he's back in control, but that's just not true. Oh yeah, absolutely. The fact that abusers need to rely on violence and coercion to ensure their partner's loyalty simply betrays their ongoing lack of control. Yeah. Our patriarchal culture teaches men they're entitled to dominance and power, and that causes so much damage, not only to the victims of intimate partner violence, the women and the children, but also to the perpetrators. It traps abusive men in this perpetual cycle of entitlement and shame and violence. It essentially stifles their ability to have meaningful relationships or to feel healthy emotions such as compassion and empathy. Yeah, it's super, super toxic. Yeah. So if we think of Hosea and Goma in light of that, what do you think the future holds for them? I mean, they've gone through this strange, air quotes, reconciliation, and Hosea insists that they'll be happy together forever. But do you think they've got any chance of being happy? No, not a chance. Not a chance at all. If I was to imagine a future for Hosea and Gomer, I strongly suspect that the cycle of violence will keep happening because Hosea is so convinced that he needs to be totally in control of his marriage. And I think that will make him desperately unhappy. He might have his wife back, but he'll always keep on wondering if she'll leave him again. Gomer will be a shadow of her former self, worn down by her husband's coercively controlling behaviour. Their children will be scared of their violent and volatile father. And Hosea will exhaust himself keeping up this tirade of threats, intimidation, humiliation, isolation, regulation, surveillance, love bombing and gaslighting, all in an attempt to prop up his increasingly fragile masculinity. Yeah, I totally agree. It's it's such a damaging cycle for absolutely everyone involved. Yeah. 
I utterly despise Hosea's violence against his wife, but I also kind of see him as this incredibly tragic figure who's almost gaslighting himself in the belief that this relationship can be happy or healthy. And you mentioned his children. He's got two sons and a daughter, right? Yeah. So if I was to imagine a future for Hosea, I can just imagine him teaching his sons to embrace the male entitlement that's currently crippling him. And he'll probably marry his daughter off to a man who also shares that sense of entitlement and who'll also enact his own humiliated fury onto her. So the violence will just keep happening from generation to generation. Oh, yeah, I think you're right. It's it's just a tragic, tragic situation. Yeah. So if you could give Hosea some advice to end the cycle of violence and coercive control, what would you say to him? Ooh, that's such a good question. Okay, well, first and foremost, I'd tell him that abusing and coercively controlling his wife doesn't make him any more of a man. In fact, I think it actually diminishes him as a man. Yeah. And secondly, I'd tell him that he needs to reach out for some help. Mm. He needs to learn to embrace non-violent emotions like compassion, empathy, and care, because these are really integral parts of being a good man. Yeah. And I think he needs to let go of that toxic myth that real men have to be in control all the time. I tell him that it's okay to feel shame or to feel vulnerable and out of control at times. The most important thing is to deal with these emotions in non-violent ways. Yeah. What about you? What would you say to Hosea? I would say everything that you just did. And I'd also urge him to teach all these things to his sons and his daughter too but particularly his sons, so that the intergenerational cycle of violence can be broken. Yeah, Jess Hill makes that point really, really well when she says that, you know, if we want to see an end to intimate partner violence, we need to, and I'm quoting her, interrupt the process that transforms tender boys into violent men. And what about Goma? What would you say to her? Uh, Well, one thing I wouldn't say is, why did you go back to him if he was so abusive? Why didn't you just leave for good? Or why didn't you leave him earlier? Yes, those are such pointless and infuriating questions. They are. But we hear them being asked to victims of intimate partner violence so often, don't we? We really, really do. And they are infuriating questions because many women simply cannot leave abusive relationships for a whole raft of reasons. Mm. And another thing, these questions ignore the ways that intimate partner violence and coercive control can chip away at the victim's sense of agency until she truly doesn't believe that leaving is an option. Mm. So yeah, what I would say to Gomer is, quite simply, I'm so sorry. What's happening to you is wrong. It's not your fault. You don't deserve this. You're not alone. You can leave this relationship. You deserve to be safe. Your children deserve to be safe. So what can we do to help you? Amen to that. So that was quite a full-on episode. Shall we end things by telling the listeners what we've been listening to or reading lately? Sure, yes. So as I'm sure you know, Em, I follow Laura Richards on Instagram. Kaz, I know you're a massive fangirl. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I admit it, I am. But I think we're both massive fans of Laura, aren't we? Okay, yes, it's true. We are, we both are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but anyway, Laura posts her TikTok videos on Instagram and she's recently been doing a series of videos, one, one or two every day, where she explains all the different aspects of coercive control in a really sort of clear and simple way. 
So for any of our listeners who want to learn more about this topic, I would highly recommend them. Yeah, I watch them on Instagram as well, and they're fantastic. So recently I listened to Believe Her, which is the story of Nikki Adamando, a young mother who was sent to prison for murdering her partner and the father of her children. Now, Nikki claims that she was acting in self-defense. It's, a, it's quite a hard listen because it involves some pretty disturbing details about intimate partner violence, childhood sexual abuse, and intergenerational trauma, but it offers some really important insights into survivors who are criminalized just for surviving. Mm, that sounds really interesting. I will, I will check that out myself. Okay, well, thank you for listening to this episode of Bloody Bible. As usual, you'll find our show notes on the website along with the links to our social media accounts. But until next time, stay safe and we'll see you later. Bye. The Bloody Bible podcast is supported by funding from the United Kingdom Arts and Humanities Research Council as part of the Shiloh Project Research Grant. Special thanks to Professor Johanna Stiebert at the University of Leeds who commissioned us to create the podcast. The podcast is produced by Carolyn Blythe, Emily Colgan and me, Richard Bonifant, who also recorded and painstakingly edited each episode. Our music is Stalker by Alexis Ortiz-Sofield, courtesy of Pixabay Music, and the podcast artwork was created by Sarah Lee West. As mentioned in the podcast, there are lots of links available in the podcast notes. Please visit us on social media. We'd love to hear from you.